You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hey everybody, Peter Maravos here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual component of our event series, where we bring you the authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. As is customary at the outset of each event, I'd like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. As we begin, I've had a request on behalf of our visually impaired friends who are interested in a description of the scenery. And of course, we are happy to oblige. I have a bookcase filled with multicolored books of all shapes and sizes directly behind me. I am pale in complexion with short hair peppered with a little gray. I'm wearing Ray-Ban Clubmaster glasses in that signature Malcolm X style. I'm also wearing a groovy City Lights hoodie in black with the customary extended martini logo over the heart. Tonight's event is being brought to you in conjunction with our friends at Historic Grove Press. And what a program it is that we can bring you this many amazing thinkers, writers, and poets together in one place is auspicious indeed. A great thanks goes out to Eileen Miles for bringing us all together. We are, after all, celebrating a new book edited and conceived by Eileen. The book is titled Pathetic Literature. It is an exuberant collection of writing ranging from poetry to drama to prose to everything in between, all of which explore those so-called writings possessing pathos. Eileen Miles needs a little introduction. We've hosted them both virtually and in-store on numerous occasions. Eileen is the author of more than 20 books and received numerous honors for their work. In short, they are one of this country's poetic treasures. Joining Eileen tonight, we are honored to have with us an amazing all-star cast. This is an historic moment to be sure. With us tonight are Fanny Howe, Maggie Nelson, Camille Roy, Laurie Weeks, Simone White, Frank Wilderson III, and Cy Gillian Weiss. And all I can say is just, wow. So for the sake of brevity, I'll be posting a link to the City Lights website where all the bios of our readers can be found. Their bios and honors would take half the program to do justice. We've got some heavy hitters here. So I encourage you all, please bookmark and link and then check it out at your leisure. We're also going to be posting links in the chat function to resume dashboard with which you may purchase copies of pathetic literature and books from all of our speakers. So without much more ado, I will turn the helm over to Eileen Miles to get the evening started. Welcome to City Lights. Yay. Um, Peter, thank you. Um, so I want to thank City Lights and I want to thank Peter and I want to thank each of the, the geniuses who are here tonight um, who are, who are you know, this many of the 106 authors dead and alive who have made up pathetic literature as it stands today. And also, I want to, you know, thank all the people who are home in their pajamas, um, may I say, for tuning in. You know, it's cool that you guys are here, whether you're on the later time and the earlier time. It's just excellent that you come. Oh, and I have not, and I have to say, I'm, I am Eileen Miles with sort of uh, silvery hair, an orange sweatshirt, um, sort of pinky tan white skin, um, uh, rimless glasses, 
And I'm in my apartment and you can see a jacket on my bed and a chiffonier behind me. And you can ask when we have a Q&A, you can ask what a chiffonier is. Um, so, I, you know, I, this is the only pathetic Zoom, which is really most of the events have been live largely. And so this is, seems very special. And it's weird because today, um, preparing for one of, the, one of the other events, I was looking at a video of, that Samuel Delaney made for us because he's going to be a video performer in two of the events coming up this weekend. And what he did was he read his piece he, in, in pathetic literature, his pieces from um, Times Square Red, Times Square, well, actually Times Square Red, not Times Square Blue, but the book is to both colors. And, um, and it's about con the difference between contact and networking. So it's very much kind of in praise of the embodied. So it was very sort of special and ironic to have been thinking about that today and then suddenly to be here. But it strikes me that like a Zoom is both is both networking and contact, you know, and sort of both at once in this um, very special way that we've all gotten very used to during the pandemic. You know, it's kind of with us now. And, um, you know, and I just I, you know, like rather than talking, I think we hopefully will have a little Q&A. So if you guys want to put some questions in the chat, we'll get there. We'll see how much time we have at the end. But, you know, I just have been noticing that I'm generally kind of happy to promote my work, but I've felt that with um, pathetic literature, I've been shameless. And it seems like <laughs> there's no amount of social media that's um, too, too much, you know. And I think part of it is because it's a collective project and I don't feel like I'm just touting Eileen. I'm touting, you know, all of us and so that and it reminds me of theater used to be like that too you know i felt like with theater somehow it was very easy to endlessly get people to try and get people to come to your work because it was for them it wasn't just you know what i mean it was just like and i think so what i want to read my own contribution to the book which i have not read in any of the events and then after that we'll hear from everybody else so i think i think tonight more than any other night so far um pathetic literature will speak for itself and if you guys have questions, you can shoot them to us later. So what I what I've um, contributed to the book is my own um, a campaign letter for president of the United States, 1991, um, which was maybe the only other time I was completely shameless in promoting myself because I felt like running for, for president was for you. And so here is this is actually when I ran. I, I kept announcing at all my events, and then I realized that I was going to be doing that through the whole campaign unless I told everybody at once. And at the time, there was no internet, and so I just wrote a letter to everybody, and I mailed it to them. And this is that letter. So, dear citizen, today, oh, September 11th, 1991, today I am announcing my candidacy for the office of President of the United States of America. I've actually been on the campaign trail since last April when I made my first public announcement in New York City, and since then in a variety of places, including Chicago, New Hampshire, Vermont, Colorado, New Mexico, and now New Hampshire again. I don't know why New Hampshire again, but the initial impulse to run for office was spurred on by George Bush's speech at a college graduation at Ann Arbor, Michigan last spring. He stated that the politically correct are the greatest threat to freedom of speech in America today. By that, he means members of ACT UP, victims of bias crimes, women, homosexuals, ethnic and racial minorities. He would like them to shut up. As president, he functions as a grand employer who has a complaint box. Each of us may get our two cents in. 
once. After that, we're on our own because there is no special treatment for the vast majority of Americans today. There's very special treatment for white upper middle class heterosexual men and their spouses and children. There is special treatment for fundamentalist Christians and fetuses. George Bush does not write his own speeches. The statements he made in Ann Arbor flowed from the pen of a new speechwriter, an alumni of the left-baiting Washington Times. The New York Times, which covered the Ann Arbor event, suggested that this was the beginning of the 92 campaign trail, for which freedom of speech would be a big issue. I thought, if he's starting now, I will too. I am a 41-year-old American, a female, a lesbian from a working-class background a poet, performer, and writer, making my living pretty exclusively from those activities. I am a taxpayer. I've lived the majority of my adult life under the poverty level without health care. I have never made over $20,000 a year. And, and that stopped me because I thought when I was a kid, my family, surely my family. And I went, I did a little research and my dad at the time of his death in 1961 was a postal worker and postal workers in 1971 made $11,000 a year. So in fact, it's true what I say. I've lived the majority of my adult life under the poverty level. Well, my mother worked too and my brother had a paper route and I babysat, but we still didn't hit 20. I have never made over $20,000 a year, nor have I ever lived in a household where our combined incomes approach that amount. More Americans, far more Americans are like me than George Bush. Why is he ruling this country and our lives? My campaign is about freedom of speech, mine and yours. I am not a professional politician, not a CEO or a lawyer. I write all my own speeches. I believe in total disclosure. What you see is what you get. I'm turning all my upcoming art events, readings, and performances until Election Day into political events. I regard my campaign as a gesture of activism, an opportunity for me to vote. I will be a write-in candidate in as many states as I can file my papers in by next fall. I need help in this area. I've got contact people only in the states I've mentioned here. This is the first monthly letter on my campaign I'll be sending to all of you who are on my mailing list. Feel free to publish it. If you would like to Xerox it and send it to 10 or 20 other people, please let me know and I will send you a portion of the mailing list. I'm also enclosing a flyer each month, which you should feel free to reproduce or distribute as you see fit. I have no campaign fund. If you would like to be on the mailing list, it's free, though the price of 14 mailings 29 cents plus Xerox plus envelope equals approximately $7 would be helpful. I also have campaign buttons, $1. But mainly, I want to run, I want your vote, and I'd like to win. Sincerely, Eileen Miles. Thank you. Gentlemen. And now Maggie. Eileen, that was so rad because I think I think I probably that might have been like one of the first things I ever heard you say in public in 1991, you know, and so again, here we are all this time later on, on the zoom. But anyway, it's so great to be here, everybody. I'm um, a white lady with long brown hair in a pink plaid snap up jacket sitting in front of some abstract paintings. And um, this book is so great for those of you who don't have it. And I um, am so honored to be here with everyone that is reading tonight. I, I wrote at the very opening of the chat, he chat Heroes, which is truly 
how I feel. Um, so it's so great to be thinking about the pathetic. Um, and I'll just read the selection that Eileen put together from uh, my book, Bluettes from 2009, that's included in the book. But what's so funny about this is that, you know, Eileen made the selection and I keep thinking, God, like, were these the most pathetic parts of that book? <laughs> and Eileen put them in, um, you know, their own order. Um, the book is 270 like propositions, but these are just like willy nilly. So I was like, wow, are they more pathetic put together in this order? So it's, it's kind of foreign to me uh, to read to read this, but, I, but I'm into it as like, this is like the pathetic core of Bluettes, I guess. Um, okay, and they're all over the map, the numbers. So I'm just gonna read it the way Eileen did it. Okay, 179. When I imagine a celibate man, especially one who doesn't even jerk off, I wonder how he relates to his dick, what else he does with it, how he handles it, how he regards it. At first glance, the same question for a woman might appear more tucked away, Pussy is absence, pussy is lack, out of sight, out of mind. But I am inclined to think that anyone who thinks or talks this way simply never felt the pulsing of a pussy in serious need of fucking, a pulsing that communicates nothing less than the suckings and ejaculations of the heart. 187, is it a related form of aggrandizement to inflate a heartbreak into a sort of allegory? Losing what one loves is simpler, more common than that, more precise. One could leave it too as it is. Yet how can I explain that every time I put a pin in the balloon of it, the balloon seems to swell back up as soon as I turn away from it? 195. Does an album of written thoughts perform a similar displacement or replacement of the original thoughts themselves? And please don't start protesting here that there are no thoughts outside of language, which is like telling someone that her colored dreams are in fact colorless. But if writing does displace the idea, if it extrudes it, as it were, like grinding a lump of wet clay through a hole, where does the excess go? We don't want to pollute the world with our leftover egos. Chung Yang Trungpa. 196. I suppose I am avoiding writing down too many specific memories of you for similar reasons. The most I will say here is the fucking. Why else suppress the details? Clearly I am not a private person and quite possibly I am a fool. Oh, how often have I cursed those foolish pages of mine which made my youthful sufferings public property, Goethe wrote after the publication of The Sorrows of Young Werther. Mm. Say Shonigan felt similarly, she wrote, whatever people may think of my book, after her pillow book gained fame and notoriety, I still regret that it ever came to light. Who won two? If I were today on my deathbed, I would name my love of the color blue and making love with you as two of the sweetest sensations I knew on earth. 213. But are you certain, one would like to ask, that it was sweet? 116. One of the last times you came to see me, you were wearing a pale blue button-down shirt, short-sleeved. I wore this for you, you said. We fucked for six hours straight that afternoon, which does not seem precisely possible, but that is what the clock said. We killed the time. You were on your way to a seaside town, a town of much blue, where you would be spending a week with the other woman you were in love with, the woman you're with now. I'm in love with you both in completely different ways, you said. 
it seemed unwise to contemplate that statement any further. 118. Not long after that afternoon, I came across a photograph of you with this woman. You were wearing the shirt. I went over to the house of my injured friend and I told her the story. As I moved her legs in and out of the inflatable thigh high boots she wears to compress her legs while lying down so as to inhibit the formation of blood clots. How ghastly, she said. 119, this is the last one. My friend was a genius before her accident and she remains a genius now. The difference is that these days it is nearly impossible to discount her pronouncements. Something about her condition has bestowed upon her the quality of an oracle, perhaps because now she generally stays in one place and one must go unto her. Eventually you will have to give up this love, she told me one night while I made us dinner. It has, she said, a morbid heart. All right, that's it. Wow. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> about I don't know who's that? next, I, or, I'd, or I'd call. Lori, maybe. Lori? No, Simone. No, Simone. Simone. Okay, great. Simone. Can I ask Peter, are we recording? We should be. Yes, we are. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, the audio book. <laughs> Thanks for unmuting me. I wasn't sure what to do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's amazing to be here um, on Zoom. On the East Coast, it's evening here, very late. Um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna read this this poem, Stingray. I'll try to describe myself as best I can, but maybe I can say that I'm a dark brown skinned woman in a gray fake Gucci hat with black aviator sunglasses on, next to a poster of Grace Jones, who is similar facially but otherwise totally unlike me. <laughs> okay this is also one of the longest poems i've ever written <laughs> so I'm, sort of, I'm i'm it's a little pathetic to take up so much space but thank you very much for including me eileen all right this poem is called stingray having had no proper family name i made do with Stingray, never loved a man so-called. For more than a generation, black and white suffer nameless conditions instigated by the father's line of nobody, murmurs to the baby, good night, nobody. There is no longer any way to count beneath the highways of the Eastern seaboard above the Mason-Dixon line underlie so many crossings. What to me the arched wing of a black stingray who think weeping over her vicious mouth, somnolent practice of stuck terror of the wave is stingray, the atomic principle of giantism, make my whole mouth move around the fire, make the fire everywhere or cold. On this street stingray, where a man thinking his boat, beauty knowing monies or leather, white leather, feeling, however, the killing power of the great sea monster, her haunch whip, a think, acquired as a gorgeous capital. Wait and sting why Odysseus always in trouble with the one-eyed. What caused his love of lake demons? Her gauze wimple under black-lit stars. 
his very early anticipation of the right guitar sound, its fullness, no reunion of the ocean and the desert, just reflect on the history of the house. 57 rays die in Chicago. For want of so lush a malapropism, I wait a long time outside the ocean and your body, sometimes nothing of images, dead brown and such like luminous captivity of the dead, repeated back to our obsessional contemporary, says back a weird lie when inside me a bit of God comes out your mouth as the command to feel you. What kind creature will you take me from being to what? Her mallow glamour warns, warmed in the glowering ripple light, this liquid, this death to you, Lady, come under this death, it is ablaze in its blue-white perfection. Hold your hand like a cup. Water light will pour you into the whole day, the deafening memory of your tenth year occurring in the space between sunup and sundown on a plot the size of an hibiscus flower. You, miss. The bicentennial was yesterday. Right queer and muggy, apparently evening. Every minute the declaration must be signed. Firework on the barge child mind, to which no superfund has yet gently repaired. Get me a stingray the color of slate, a little girl switchblade, the horizon of which is an arc. Gutter oil, slick Delaware, that horizon. Is New Jersey a plot, her shore? Farms send blueberries and war. In this form, it is impossible to be together. It is being nothing at all, then cast in this court trick, vulvar form, oh clamped then, between together and nothing. Forms of sand, coarse, pink, edible, no seams along which to break. A black flag waves in hot wind, form of formless, a craft, a craft appears. Materialized hot gas, raucous to suspend life outside of life. Shadows beyond wishing and male news and plotted to hover. No wools or porcelain anywhere in sight of the flat class, stingray. Vanity's pool, heteronymous in the tight grate. Withdraw from earth, one fractal initially. Retreat then, the slick thing quavered, she said, of sediment rustling abashed, contemplation of stones rushing together under the fresh lake, not the elementary bite of capital, give, that is a wound. And she, raw, bloodless, could you bleed, howled, housed, gowned, fucked in a prehistoric manner, still sea monster. The very source or the veil, complete silence, the silent inhalation or stopped time, time being unmet, totally unregulated, slack and unreturned, threshing the DNA then, she becomes another one. That's it. Yay. 
So, so awesome. I get to be unmuted and I can get to say things like that. That was yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's Camille now. Where, where is Camille? Hello. I was muted. That was fabulous. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here reading with everybody. Eileen, your fabulous anthology is like my favorite pirate ship. So I'm, oh, and I remember that campaign. I still have a button. Okay, um, reading my catastrophe. The mind ends in a sort of swamp. We are swamp creatures paddling around in the mud and mangroves of our neural landscape. I also imagine there is a horizon with a fringe of reeds and little lights, maybe fireflies. This is the boundary where mind turns into nature. You can wait there for a gust of spirit. That is where I dream, the cat curled next to me, the one who used to curl next to you. I knew you would come with a word for me, a tender flutter, a wing, syllables. The medium opened her palm and there I saw it. When things feel unbearable. That's not it exactly. It was the sudden rise up of incomprehension. Have you ever had those moments where you know you don't have the resources or capacity to deal with what is coming next or even understand it? I don't know about you, and that is partly because my state of unknowing has become so large. I know this about myself. I'm not porous enough, big enough, small enough to fit through the whole of the next hour. It's the roller crasher. The weird thing about the steep decline and death is that it doesn't feel real. It feels like a life blasted open until it reaches the nooks and crannies of superstition, coincidence, pitiful moments, sorrows, vast stores of tenderness. July 1st, 2017. She is in a hospital bed in the dining room. I am in the next room looking at her in a baby monitor. The light reflects in her slit of an eye, it gleams. She nods an answer to one question and then no response. It's a ghostly little image, grainy, black and white, shot in the dark, my companion, my dying lover. The future is a mental cramp. Tonight, I had the intense frustration of yearning for her companionship, her thoughts, her humor, her taste. I thought, it is stopping now, our lived relationship. She is still here, but she is slipping away. When will the future stop being a hostile force? Her sister told me this story about Angie's last text. It was garbled and misspelled, but it was something about it would happen tomorrow. Her sister called her and they talked on the phone. Angie explained that she was dead. She was already dead. This was soon after her mother, Peggy, died. Her sister just asked questions. How are Megan and Reese dealing with this? Oh, I'm helping them, she said. You know, I was a counselor. Have you seen mom, her sister asked. No, but I'm working on it, she replied. We have these bodies, we drag them around. They exist beside and through us. But what do they mean really? When Angie told me that she thought she was dead, she said that there, in that afterlife place, there was no gender. 
What was that like, I asked. It was a relief, she said. July 2nd, 2017, 12.15 a.m. Today, Angie was very quiet and not eating. I went on a walk in the evening and brought back a blackberry, juicy and sweet, and a rose I picked from a hedge in front of the house with the French garden and fountain across from McKinley Park. When I came home, I rubbed the blackberry across Angie's teeth and that seemed to wake her. Then she ate half a banana and drank milk. I put the rose on her pillow. Reese fell asleep next to her. He said, I love you, mom. I was on the other side, cuddled up. She ran her hand up and down my arm. She murmured something about animal spirits. And I said, yes, I have always loved your animal spirits. You have such animal spirits. She said she is roused by her animal spirits. She has strong animal spirits. She talked about herself as she, as if she is beginning to separate from herself. July 6th, 2017, night one without my love in the world. First, she was warm. Then as the hours passed, she became cool. I was frightened when I kissed her cheek. It looked so familiar, but felt and was other. Her deep chill, the blood pooling in her back, her stiffening fingers. She had gone, flown, where? Just now, I woke up with anguish and walked around the house, dazed with sleep. I looked in on the dining room with the empty hospital bed. I felt her absence keenly and mysteriously. I went to the window because I thought I heard birds, and there was a glimmer of light on the horizon. I realized it was dawn, and there were birds. Their songs floated in a lovely mass, cool cooing and burbles and sharp calls. A soft breeze seemed to lean against me. I recognized all this as the place where Angie had gone. That thought flowed over me like a gentle wind. Charlotte Joko Beck says, joy is exactly what is happening, minus our opinion of it. Tonight, I remembered with something like pleasure, the final bathing of her, her beautiful white-haired pussy, the lips which hung down, which she wondered at. She thought they either hung down or what? I don't remember. She thought there were two types. I bathed her, perhaps with Reese, and it felt fine somehow. I felt a joy in her body, now relaxed and dead, but it was still warm, and so it felt like my lover. I dressed her in a dark cobalt blue shirt I had just bought her and some dark gray black pants. I put her beret on and the witch's cord decorating her neck. The bones in her face seemed more prominent and the bones were lovely. I'm gonna skip forward, this is like a month later. August 2nd, 2017. Today, Reese's 24th birthday, I gave him a Viking amulet from 900 AD, a duck's foot. It's strange, but perfect. He picked it out. Now he is out doing karaoke. But I woke up feeling twisted. And this morning I had a meltdown, some disappointment related to this birthday. Reese had to tell me to stop. He called Bob and fixed it and we had our nice party. Although through it all, I felt the raw sewage of grief under my surface. August 3rd, 2017. I have been thinking about what I wrote yesterday. He called Bob and fixed it and we had our nice party. All through it, I felt the raw sewage of grief under my surface. Grief is sewage. 
Why did that feel so right as an accurate? Today, when the grief stirred, it felt like a sickness, even a sickness of the bowels, tightness across the face, unrest in the gut, breathlessness. Today, before I left work, for work, I had to shit. And it made me feel sick, repulsed, like something out of control and wrong was about to happen. I was about to throw something out of me. I had a moment of worry as if I was about to shit my pants. At the moment of worry, I realized this worry is not uncommon for me. It's a reason I prefer to shit before I go to work. Defecation has an edge of nausea, desperation, and violence. I thought about that in relation to my grief. It's shocking to think that the purpose of grief is to turn our love into shit. And that's not it, but it's a part of it. Eating and shitting turns food into muscle, bone, blood, heart, love, sleep, life. Shitting is the excrement. It's not the point of eating, just the consequence. Grief, this deep grief, the sickness that comes over me, it makes me cry and cry. And after a bout of tears, I feel clear and not happy, but calm. I wonder if this shitty grief will turn our great love and our decades together into a kind of nourishment. It will be transformed into memory. It will be entering my life forever, but through memory. One thing this does is persuade me that I should try to allow the grief to roll through me, roll with its thunder and cramping, this slippery dive into helplessness and agony, just to let that happen, let it take me. I am shitting something. I am not losing something I need. I forgot to give my description. I'm a white lady with long gray hair and a black shirt in a blurry kitchen. Sorry about that. No, no, good to know. <laughs> that was so brilliant. God, I guess. Thank you, Megan. God. Thank you, everyone. Am I just going right along? You, we, absolutely. Are we just going right along? Eileen um, excerpted uh, this for me, so it wouldn't be, be thousands of years long. I still feel it's, it's too long, but anyway, it's from my story called Worms Make, Make Heaven. I sliced through a worm with a shovel while gardening but I didn't cut it completely in half. A thin whitish pink strand connected the two writhing segments of its body. Oh fuck, little dude, I'm so sorry, I shouted, shit. I tried to shut it down, but waves of desperation and grief rolled through me for days. Constantly and without warning, the worm's red panic burst through the door, a melee of hooves in my chest. Film clips looped under my ribs. The worm's frenetic, thrashing, corkscrewing, arch, arching, and coilings into O silhouettes, knotted contortions, hopeless shape-shiftings of agony, an agony pretzel that triggered a reciprocal maelstrom around my heart, unidentifiable morphing forms speeding around, sensations without definition, broadly categorized as emotions, and invisible except for hints of ripple and shimmer. Certain entities cloak themselves for the good of everyone. It's just better that way. Even with lifespans so infinitesimal, they vanish even as they start to exist. They could be anything, issue from anywhere, capable of materializing in our dimension only as the sigh of a dreaming bacteria. 
So we are quantum beings who exist everywhere on multiple planes unconsciously. So the worm would appear and explode into fireworks and oh my God, fuck would slide from my mouth uncontrollably before the thought even registered. I loathe the word moan so much, yet that's what I was doing. And I mean, all the time, basically anywhere really, except mostly in public. I'd be compulsively bonding with whatever stranger, usually a cashier. What else even is there? Or is that just me with the problem? Compulsively bonding, stressing the hapless victim with nervous codependent empathy type jokes about the horror of packing my bags, which very occasionally made them kind of laugh a little. Sometimes it was actually totally okay for real and we'd both be laughing, this genius cashier and I when suddenly what I'd done to the worm would punch me straight in the solar plexus. There are less stars in the universe than the times in retail situation where I moaned, oh, fuck me, just fuck me and fuck you too, and kind of collapsed onto the conveyor belt or just put my head down into my shopping cart, which really, that move confuses everyone. Worms can regenerate both their heads and their tails, but so what? There will always be that moment where I severed the worm and it suffered. Oh my God, I'm so sorry, I would say to the alarmed cashier. I just remembered something terrible. Sorry, that's all you need to, that's all you need, another freak to brighten your day. In these spirals, no one was safe. I would drag them under with me as I frantically said anything to make everything be okay to erase and cleanse the space between the hapless cashier and me, this field filled with teeming thought form bedlam. That made me panicky. What drove this babble? What scenario was playing out inside or through me that compelled me to broadcast all over everyone else? This second arrow of suffering, as Buddhists say, on top of the original catastrophe, what was this? You could say desperation. But what even is that? Were there written images that could instantly produce the same sensation of having severed a worm other than the phrase, I severed a worm? Walking, I'd ruminate. What were the words for this anguish and grief? Blackbirds flapped up in my mind's tiny sky, ceiling, cell. I focused on my chest, flock of shrapnel. Was that approximate to the sensation of a weightless image, the twisting red segments and connecting red nerve thread of the worm detonating in your heart to whip straight up around your throat and yank? Answer, no, it was not. No flocks, no shrapnel, just words with the velocity, shape, density, flailing, and float floatiness of shape, shame and grief. What other criteria are even are there. On YouTube, I learned that the ancient Egyptians were so finely tuned, they classified 360 senses as opposed to five. I need to find out exactly what they are, because without them, what am I? Is there a word for me that means anything at all? Infinite potentials called creatures live in the space of my heart. Tiny bats hanging row upon row. It's okay, I love bats, that's not my point. But what does it look like? Are there words nuanced enough to produce the sensation of suffering that 
comes from inflicting pain on a tiny, slow thing, helpless against us. Something else, but the same. Obsessing about this gave me that weird Virginia Wolf meets Ingmar Bergman at the 7-Eleven for cherry Slurpees rung up by a meth head with 30 days clean and no teeth. Meanwhile, an innocent creature noses sweetly about in the April mud, body rippling and euphoric in the harmonics of soil against her skin, just moseying along while the peepers peep and sway, clinging on the reeds next to the creek that runs ticklish and giggling over rocks, spangled green gold in the light slanting through sweet flag and overhead the gold finches flash and swirl, everyone singing, fuck. I was born with Mars and Cancer, a bad position. Oh Jesus, like a curse? I said to Zippy, who was doing my chart. No, she said, it's like you don't have conscious access to your reactions and motivations. They're down there sucking up your energy like oxygen until you'll just explode without warning. Meaning the flamboyant planets not zooming through the solar system in overdrive, places to go, things to do, people to meet, picking up speed from its rogue adventurings, but instead pissed to find itself tumbling from its own orbit repeatedly due to an oscillating sense of direction or wobbly axis, spun into free fall by its wavering response to some random perturbation, losing plot and velocity without warning or going totally retrograde time after time, just as it hits the zone, catches the flow, really starts to cruise, sideswipe to wobbly standstill, vacillating between rage and apology by whatever ridiculous thing, the inconsequential vibe, say, from a passing fleck of space trash before plummeting an orange ball bearing screaming down from the ether, thermonuclear with rage at its brutal plunge yet again, goddammit, towards a pool of scuttling, indecisive crabs. That's weird, you might remark to your companion on the beach pointing toward a nectarine glow beneath the waves, right before they erupt with a mega missile of steam that concusses you both back into the parking lot, whomever you are, sprawled out on the hot asphalt, ears ringing. You watch the massive column blasting through the ocean into the stratosphere, and that's me. One more vaporized bit of intention, desire, optimism, jetting off through the ozone, kind of lost track of the metaphor, but the correct answer is not flock of shrapnel. So, okay, Mars in Cancer, not the greatest, but also I'm an Aries ruled by Mars. This special needs Mars. Jesus, I said, what valuable lesson do, lesson do I have to learn before the school principal of the universe lets me get past this? I'm not sure, replied Zippy my best friend and astrology genius. Actually, we might be in love, but I can't tell because I can't find my feelings. It's some karmic thing to do with your dad, probably, since Mars is your dad sometimes. I mean, Saturn is too, but I was wearing a beautiful blue plaid button-down shirt, tapered, my favorite shirt from eBay. And there was a tear in the back from having been dragged down Main Street one day by my girlfriend's car, from which I jumped because it was like she was trying to kill me with the thing she said. 
I only held onto the door handle a second or two. Somehow I must have known I'd be okay, scraping along the asphalt next to the tire. Everyone saw, but I finally twisted away from the car, stood up and walked off into an alley, body screaming with adrenaline. Then I got amnesia. This happens all the time. One day I picked up the shirt and said, how'd this hole get here? You jumped out of the car, remember? My girlfriend said, damn it, Zibby, help me, I cried. I'm deeply in love with you, but fuck my dad, A, and B, I'm sick of driving this piece of shit car called my life that blows up every 10 seconds, even though I'm only going one fucking mile an hour. You're not telling me anything, but I don't mean that in a mean way. Zippy laughed. Her real name is Missy, but now she's Zippy due to an autocorrect mistake while texting, which fits because her real, real name is Melissa, which means honeybee in Greek or something, and bees, Zippy. Do I even need to explain? Let me think about it, Zippy said. I stood up. You're kind of a charlatan, I said. I want to kiss Zippy, but I'm frightened because I'm so shut down. Do I want to kiss her, though? Really? Yes. Stop this. It's just that I feel like maybe no one's heart is safe in my hand. Don't you want another glass of wine or something, I said? You need to get a little drunker so I can relax. My eyes started filling and I looked down, grinding my teeth. One more section. It's April, there's been rain, and just beneath the surface, the soil's delirious with worms nosing about or unhappily ambushed by me, deep within clay balls as deeply impacted as cement. The chunks are so hard and heavy, I've mistaken them for concrete and broken them apart with a hammer only to find worms inside, impossibly inhabiting a solid, moving slowly from our vantage point. But what does slow even mean in a worm's space-time coordinates? Really, they're undulating like eels through water, radio waves through bone, neutrinos through the body of a planet, as those salamanders scamper and flip inside granite blocks and stingrays glide through the thick lead walls shielding underground government complexes from radiation. Somehow their soft, long bodies penetrate and traverse this rock. I envision them in a slow float, their molecules spreading into transparency, invisible membranes just sliding through the dense atoms of soil and aerating it, I guess. Who knows if they have lips? I'm gonna make the call, they've got lips. Humming lips vibrating so subtly, clouds breathing on your skin, the clay becomes fluffiness. It's alchemy, allowing moisture and nutrients to perfuse the ground deeply rather than evaporate or wash away, seeping down to the tendrils of say embryonic yellow and scarlet zinnias waiting to drink and spiral up through the ground into the golden green and blue world to blossom into landing sites for the tickling filaments of butterflies and bees. Butterflies love zinnias and it's totally mutual. Vermilion zinnias or zinnias of any color spiraling up toward the sky, 
so easy to drink and spiral up to those myriad blues up there like nothing. It's so easy. We're flowers and we're playing. It's heaven. Worms make heaven. People say things like, worms don't feel pain. What? How could you know that? What people should always say instead is, oh my God, worms, thank you. Jesus fucking Christ, thank you, worms. Thank you for heaven. Worms can regenerate both their heads and their tails, but meanwhile, their agony is unmistakable. Growing up, before I learned to fly fish, I pushed fish hooks through the live night crawlers as bait. Oh, worms don't feel pain, said dad. He said that about trout too, as he taught us to bang their heads on the edge of the boat or stab a knife into their brains. I believed him until I was 14. And since then, I haven't been able to fish. Doctors used to operate on newborn babies without anesthesia because they knew babies didn't feel pain. Children who don't feel pain chew their tongues off, rest their hands on burning stones, gouge out their eyeballs, jump off roofs, then run around on broken legs. How could anything living not feel pain and remain alive? The end. God. Weeks, you're a one-man band. It's amazing. <laughs> God. Frank. Thank you. That was really great, uh, Laurie. I, I was, as we were reading, I was thinking, what a beautiful metonymic chain of surrealism. And I've been killing a lot of ants lately. I thought maybe I'd get a poem like that out of that, but I realized that I've been doing it deliberately and you did it by accident. So it's not, it's not going to work. <laughs> work. Um, Thank you, Eileen, for inviting me to be in this anthology and to be on the reading with you and everybody else um, today and then later next month in uh, person in, in LA. Um, oh, yes, I'm a 66-year-old black guy with um, silvery grayish hair uh, and a graying mustache and goatee. I'm wearing a t-shirt in my study. The desk is made of glass and they're bookshelves and plants in the background and, and pictures. So I'm going to read a, a vignette, but I thought that um, a short vignette, but I wanted to um, today is I, I just got back from the first of two birthday uh, dinners for my wife, Anita Wilkins, who just turned 88 years old today. And uh, she's also a, a, she's a wonderful poet and has helped me so much over the years. Uh, so this is a, this is a, a poem for her for, from some time ago. But when we first got together about 26 years ago, we were asking each other, like, what nicknames did um, the people in our family call us? And uh, she said, well, in my family, she grew up in the 30s and 40s and 50s in the plains of eastern Montana, where they were sheep farmers. And she said they called me sister. So I thought, well, that's very interesting. Uh, everyone, the, the, the parents and aunts and everyone called her sister. I also should say that normally, if you've read any of my work before, when I talk about the war, I mean, for me, the Vietnam War. I was about 19 or 20 when it ended. But the war in this poem is, uh, of course, World War II 
in the depression is the Great Depression. This is for Anita. It's called the names we the names we go by. In a time too poor for names, uncles, aunts, your parents, and a brother more angelic than the stars called you sister. I see that pass before me as night, always night, with flocks of sheep bundling a sky of red dust and ruin. You are there in the deep incomprehension of your kin, beyond broadcasts of depression or war, knowing that the tales of comets to be seen must not be looked upon. From my coastline, I practice cartography. I trace your voice for trees twisted by wind. I listen to your eyes for a reason. I grope back the way I came through other loves for a place pulled away by sand and sea, that place our hearts went down for air. Sister, I am here amid the useless prayers, the names we go by. So happy birthday, Anita. Uh, I'll close with um, a vignette, which is about a black family in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I grew up most of my life, um, at least my childhood and teenage years, uh, dealing with uh, the George Floyd murder just a few days after it happened. And um, there's still fire and rebellion in the streets. Uh, you've got the Reverend Tyson, a minister, his wife, Leontine Tyson, their son, a college a radical student named Guy, and a man named Mr. Holland is over for Sunday dinner. Um, he's, a, he's not quite what the doctors call sane. It's June 7th, 2020, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Reverend Tyson and his wife, Leontine Tyson, unbowed their heads from grace to find their son, Guy, and Mr. Holland had not been praying. As far as the good reverend was concerned, Mr. Holland had a pass. Inside Mr. Holland's head was a pageantry of regret that played itself out so vividly someone could yell fire, and only a coin toss would determine if the warning was loud enough to pierce the ruin that ran riot through Mr. Holland's mind. Got to say grace to eat at this table, Reverend Herman Tom Tyson told his son. This is a cafeteria now. Mrs. Tyson was too shaken to make Sunday dinner as had been the custom since Guy was a boy. There was still so much smoke and sirens on Lake Street that she hadn't dared venture, venture out to Lund's grocery store. Eight minutes and 40 seconds, she thought, the time it took. So she had looped north then west around Lake Street to a delicatessen in St. Louis Park for roasted chicken and white folks ready-mades, as her mother would have called the marinated kale, the potato salad, and a tray of garlic butter dinner rolls she only had to warm. But the college, yes, the college she had made herself. There were certain limits to what white folks knew how to cook. It's Sunday, Leontine pleaded with her son, hoping to avoid an eruption between two men whose long durée of strike and counter-strike would surely send her to an early grave. Then the collards were getting cold. Guy had height, but his father had brawn, 
All through Guide's teenage years, Leontine fretted as to who would win if they ever went to blows. What do you think, Mr. Holland? Guy asked. Should we pray while we still have police stations that need to be burned? Reverend Tyson leaned toward his son, who sat to his father's left and directly across from Mr. Holland. In a low, soft hiss, he said, I'm three seconds off your ass. Herman, Leontine's glass came down on the table a little too hard. It's Sunday. Mr. Holland's, Mr. Holland's eyes widened, his teeth clicked, his jaw flinched as though his body knew Leontine's fear in a way his mind refused to face. The doctors said his mind worked like a pineapple upside down cake. Instead of the conscious mind repressing taboos and storing them for dreams in the unconscious, his unconscious mind often repressed understanding of what sane people said. Toward the rich aroma of roasted chicken on a platter near Mrs. Tyson, Mr. Holland's head inclined. The smell made him smile, and Leontine thought for a moment how angelic he looked. A Caesar's wreath of hair crowned his bald head. But when he smiled, the dandruff on his shoulders were snowy epaulets. He smiled and nodded towards the roast chicken. Don't give me any white meat, Leontine, please. It's like warm beer. I just cannot get it down. Leontine did what she and her husband and Guy always did on Sundays. Ignore Mr. Holland's pronouncements with knowing smiles and blasé sighs. Half the time, he wasn't talking to anyone in the room. Leontine knew she couldn't slice the chicken before her son said grace or gave his father a beat down. Why did that boy have to go and get himself killed after Guy came home from college, she thought. And then she thought, devil be gone. She shuddered as the thought fluttered in and out of her mind. Would in her name, she wondered, as her son pierced his father's forehead with a death stare, would folks call for the end of the world if she had died beneath Chauvin's knee? Guy, she said, dinner's getting cold. In a wine glass, she poured Mr. Holland runoff from the greens. Mr. Holland sipped the collard juice and laughed. Pot liquor, he bellowed as he held up his glass in a toast no one joined him in. Got more vegetables in me than water, he said. More water in me, with th more water in me than wine. He winked at Guy. Puts lead in your pencil, son. You can swamp him with babies just by drinking this here juice. Won't be an ofe left to spit at. What do you think, Mr. Holland? Guy asked again. Is this a day for prayer? Mr. Holland held up his finger. To everyone's surprise, not only had he seemed to have processed the question the second time Guy asked him, but he had an answer. I once knew a prayer that wasn't on its knees, he said, walked all the way to Biloxi, if I'm not mistaken. Guy's head rocked back in laughter. The Reverend Tyson's chair screeched back from the table. His wife felt the clutch of her breath in her throat. She closed her eyes and tried to compose a plausible story for the police. But to her utter surprise, her son bowed his head. His fingers steepled and laced, and her son began to pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, 
Provider of this bounty, we pray in Jesus' name for the salvation of our departed brother, George Floyd, who will never share the warmth and comfort of home with his family again, as we are still so blessed to share. A long, heartfelt amen slipped through his parents' lips. The walls even seemed to sigh in great relief. Guy continued his prayer. From here to Washington, D.C., may you, in your almighty wisdom, rain down some serious hellfire on this pig power structure. Reverend Tyson threw his napkin at his son as he shot to his feet. On your feet, boy! Don't you boy me, Guy shot back as he stood and waited for his father to throw a punch. With his knife, Mr. Holland pinged his wine glass repeatedly until he had everyone's attention. He held up his plate to Leontine and asked her for a drumstick. He ate in silence, alone. When Reverend Tyson and Guy were finally in their seats, Mr. Holland began to speak in that tone of voice they'd come to know over the years as his way of talking to all the guests he brought to their table who never reached a hand outside his head to introduce themselves. Every suture, said Mr. Holland, munching piously, opens new wounds. Thank you. That was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. I feel like unique. Now what? Yeah. Now, now, now it is, is Psy. Where is Zai? I'm right here. I had trouble unmuting myself. Thank you so much, City Lights. And thank you. Oh my God, I'm honored to, to be here reading with everyone. Um, I want to get, wow, my leg has decided to glitch right now. I'm a cyborg. I'm wearing presently a computerized limb and it's vibrating and it's making a little bit of noise. So I'm just, I'm absorbing that. We're disabled people. We improvise, right? I'm a, I'm going to go ahead with my visual description and, and perhaps take my cyborg leg off if it continues to vibrate. Okay, I'm going to think this through. I'm a white cyborg. I'm wearing rhinestones in the crown of my head. I am also wearing Velcro as makeup on my cheekbone. I'm wearing a high collared pleated black um, bolero and I'm in my living room. Oh, I'm so glad. In the back, you can see my crutches. They're standard medical issue crutches in that terrible silver gray style, but I've covered them with shiny bondage tape. Um, I went through Pathetic Lit and I thought, I really want to know who are the disabled people in this book? And honey, there are many of us. Now, I am only going to invoke those of us who are openly disabled. So if you're thinking, I think that person might be, well, I don't know it. I haven't been informed of it. And I'm also only going to name those of us that my chronic pain brain has given to me. Like I know immediately that they're disabled because this book is so exciting and I can't even believe I'm in it alongside disabled writers, including... Borges, Kathy Acker, Lucille Clifton, Horachista Kapoor, Valerie Solanas, mm -hmm. and me? What? What is going on? Um, I want to drop in an access copy. I know we had a little bit of issues with captions. So this is an access copy, and it serves as captions for my portion of the reading. 
The first poem I'm going to read, I'm only reading two things, my poem in the book, and then Eileen kindly asked me to read Judy Gran, a little excerpt from A Woman is Talking to Death. I certainly know better than to read my own work after Judy Gran. Never in a million years would I do that. So I'm going to start with a poem that's a talkback to an ableist poem. But you don't have to have read the ableist poem to understand my poem. That specific kind of poem is common. And if you've read one, you've read a hundred of them. So if you are a disabled poet and you have been harmed by ableism or sanism or autism in poetry, then I am reading this poem for you. Catullus helped me write it. The poem is in his standard hindecasyllabics, the 11 syllable, not 10 syllable line, which are asymmetrical. And we are often asymmetrical as disabled people. And I love that about the hindecasyllabic line. The poem is called Catullus Tells Me not to write the rant against Maggie Smith's good bones. You don't like the poem, so what? Why are you clicking on her, following her? I know, I know, the metaphor sucks. So let's get drunk, score some poppers, Act like horses. Call up Alec. Who is he to deprive me of the local geraniums? Just because he owns a thrift store, I got thrift and I got stored in the libraries. I am checked out. That poem is boring. It's the same poem y'all been writing in your centuries. Someone gets sad, buys a house, has children, politics, and little birdies. Throw some ableism in and publish it. Here's a poem for you. Ignatius had a beard and I fucked him. <laughs> and... This next is an excerpt of a poem by Judy Gran. City Lights, I'm wondering if you can, actually, I don't, I think it's in my access copy, but there's a link to it uh, on Poetry Foundation if you would like to read the complete poem. Mm -hmm. I also want to do a quick shout out to a fellow cyborg, Kenise Jarbeau, poet in the Zoom right now, who's been giving me cyborg supports because this is stressful reading with these luminaries and also all the luminaries in the audience. This is from Judy Granz, A Woman is Talking to Death, a mock interrogation. Have you ever held hands with a woman? Yes, many times. Women about to deliver, women about to have breasts removed, wombs removed, miscarriages, women having epileptic fits, having asthma, cancer, women having breast bone marrow sucked out of them by nervous or indifferent interns, women with heart conditions who were vomiting, overdose, depressed, drunk, 
lonely to the point of extinction. Women who had been run over, beaten up, deserted, starved. Women who had been bitten by rats and women who were happy, who were celebrating, who were dancing with me in large circles or alone. Women who were climbing mountains or up and down walls or trucks and roofs and needed a boost up, or I did. Women who simply wanted to hold my hand because they liked me. Some women who wanted to hold my hand because they liked me better than anyone. These were many women? Yes, many. What about kissing? Have you kissed? Any women? I'm so thrilled to throw to Fanny Howe. And Fanny, I just have to say, I really love your book, Love and I. So I'm having a fangirl moment. Over to you. Where is Fanny? Just a sec. Trying to get her activated. Well, she was here a minute ago. I don't see her anymore. I'm such a huge fan. I never thought I'd meet her. Yeah. Sorry, Eileen. It doesn't look like can, she's here. Can I call her? Yeah, please, would you? Let's let's do that. Can I just say how great everyone is and what an honor it is to be in this room? Yeah, I, I feel like it's a historic reading. So we need this this beautiful tail end of Fanny. Where is she? Fanny changed my life back in the day. So sorry to be okay. I'm sorry. It's part of your star power. Yeah. Well, hello, and what a fabulous reading. I'm so impressed. Mm. And thank you, Eileen, for including me in both the book and this event now. I'm in Cambridge now, near where Eileen was born, and so was I. I'm going to read a poem from the book called A Vision. Oh, and um, I am an old lady with um, a big pair of glasses on. <laughs> a Vision. Some old people want to leave this earth and experience another. They don't want to commit suicide. They want to wander out of sight without comrades or luggage. Once I was given such an opportunity, and what did I find? Mist between mountains, the monotonous buzz of farm machinery, corn stalks brown and flowers, then furrows preparing to receive seeds for next year's harvest. A castle half ruined by a recent earthquake, still highly functional. Computers, copying machines and cars. It was once a monastery and home for a family continually at war. Cypress trees and chestnut and walnut trees, a swing hanging long from a high bough where paths circle down, impeding quick escapes by armies or thieves. 
I was assigned the monastic wing that later became a granary. Brick red flagstones, small windows with hinged casements, and 12 squares of glass inside warm frames. From the moment I entered the long, strange space, I foresaw an otherworldly light taking shape. Scorpions lived in the cracks. I came without a plan, empty-handed except for my notebooks from preceding days. This lack was a deliberate choice to see what would be revealed to me by circumstances. I took long walks that multiplied my body into companionable parts, down dusty roads and alongside meadows, and pausing to look at the mountains and clouds, I talked to myself. Mysticism provides a path for those who ask the way to get lost. It teaches how not to return, wrote Michel de Certeau. One day I had the sense that there were two boys accompanying me everywhere I went. I could not identify the boy on the left, but the one on the right was overwhelmingly himself, someone I knew and loved. The other one was very powerful in his personality, an enigma and a delight. His spirit seemed to spread into the roads and weather, silver olive trees and prim vineyards, now a rain has whitened the morning sky, but every single leaf holds a little water and glitter. Mirror neurons experience the suffering that they see, a forest thick with rust and gold that doesn't rust. I saw a painting where the infant Jesus was lying on his back on the floor at the feet of Mary, and his halo was still attached to his head and another painting where there are about 40 baby cherubs, all wearing golden halos. Gold represents the sun as the sun represents God. Outside, wild boars were still roaming the hills. Maize, sunflowers, honey, thyme, beans, stones, olives, and tomatoes. Rush hour in the two-lane highway. Oak tree leaves curled into caramel balls. A Franciscan monk sat on a floor reciting the rosary, a concept borrowed from Islamic prayer beads centuries before. Figs, bread, pasta, wine, and cheese. These are not the subconscious, but necessities. People want to be poets for reasons that have little to do with language. It's the life of the poet that they want, I think even the glow of loneliness and humiliation, to walk in the gutter with a bottle of wine. Some people's lives are more poetic than a poem, and Francis is certainly one of these. I know because he walked beside me for that short time, whether you believe it or not. He was 13. That night I drank walnut liqueur, just a sip. It tasted like Kahlua. The inner wing of a bird is the color of a doe, and the turned-over earth is the color of a nut and a bird. But soon it will be watered for the green wheat of spring. Flying up the hill on the back of the motorbike in the warm Roman air was like drinking from the fountain of youth. 
umbrella trees along the Tiber. I walked on the rooftops across Rome, including a grassy one and one where a palm grew out of a crack in the rocks. I was carrying an assortment of envelopes containing paintings and notes for my mass, but they could not be managed easily because their shapes were irregular. Some had juttings, some were swollen. The color red was prominent. They depicted divided cities, divided into layers, not all in a line. A layer cake sagging under the weight of accumulated dust, dirt, and now grass. Each layer had been purchased at the cost of decades, even centuries of hand-hurting, back-breaking slave labor. Caveat emptor, broken columns, mashed marble friezes and faces. The triumph of greed was written across my storyboard. The city was a mighty and devouring creation, a creature with a rough crusted skin. Even in the city, you look for a place that welcomes you. You actually want to be found. Being found is the polar opposite of making a vow. You are a pot of gold and not the arc of the rainbow. When you sit down on a stone face up to the sun, you can't help but think, mine, mine. And you don't have to promise anything to anyone in time. You may be called to a place of banality or genius, but as long as it's your own happiness that responds to it, you're available to something inhuman. Mozart sat at the piano for the better part of every day. All over the world, monks have lived in desert hovels as scribes, prophets, mendicants. They are the extreme realization of one aspect of human personality that tends towards lack of possession and solitude. There was a hole in the roof of the Pantheon where we were told that the snow fell through onto the relics of Catherine of Siena, the mystic, and onto the porphyry. A man in Rome told me that a monkey climbed down a wall holding an infant in his arms. And in remembrance, there is a statue of the Madonna on the very rooftop where he began his descent. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Fanny, you're the greatest end of all time. Yeah. You just make being wise look easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, incredible. What a group you are. Oh, Thank you, Fanny. So amazing. Where are we at, Peter? Do we do we have to go away? Can we answer a couple of questions or what's our oh, destiny? Are you sure we can take some questions? There's a few in the chat. Yeah. Okay. We're good. My God, you guys, this was such a great reading. Is there is there well, thank you everyone? Wow. Absolutely. Can you find a question, Peter? Oh, I was saying, can I or any uh, Yeah, no, I can I can pick one out for you. Yeah, actually um, that would be Yeah. Uh, so we've got um let's see. Can Eileen or anybody on the chat recommend a poet, author, songwriter with an absurdist sense of humor or satire? What <laughs> I think that's a, I mean, haven't you just heard some? I think. 
I think maybe you just heard a couple. I mean, I guess since I'm looking at the face of Laurie Weeks, I'll say Laurie Weeks. <laughs> but I could probably recommend um, to every all of the people too. Probably Frank Wilderson. Um, I don't know. I mean, anybody else want to jump in with some names? I think every question deserves the dignity of an answer. A, beautiful. My mind is kind of blank. Whenever I get asked questions like that, I can't remember every, anyone I've ever read. I've never read a thing before <laughs> in my life, exactly. <laughs> Does anybody have an answer besides God. us? I mean, Allen Ginsberg. I mean, it's really, it's like the history of literature is pretty absurdist, full of humor and satire, I think. I mean, I'm going to walk right downstairs and there's going to be a stack of them. Hey, I got a, I got another question from Tamara. Oh, how did you decide on the theme of the book and how did you collect the poems? Oh, um, well, you know, I think the word pathetic was rattling around in the 90s and it was more like an art world word. And it had to do with um, masculinity and, you know, that kind of Beck, I'm a loser, baby. And, you know, and people like people like um Mike Kelly and all of them who were doing kind of bad boy diaristic. And I just was thinking there must be, there must be a, um, there must be pathetic literature as opposed to it just being about visual art. And then it seemed really obvious that, that most of the work that I loved was pathetic. If it meant, um, if it meant, well, if it meant, <laughs> if it meant everything, if it meant, you know, inadequate or overcompensating and a little bent and, um, gender skewed and, um, you know, minimalist and maximalist, just kind of uh, kind of wandering work that somehow cohered in a completely different way. And so, I mean, the first person I picked was, um, I mean, I guess I did teach a class and there was some people like there was Valerie Solanas, there was Samuel Delaney, there was Chris Krauss. I can't remember if Laurie was on the list, um, John Wieners, and then, and then I think the, literally when I started editing the book, the first thing I put in was Simone Bay, um, because she has a very beautiful, I just thought that she's so, um, you know, I thought like with Maggie said, ejaculations of the heart, you know, I mean, like Simone Bay has such strong feelings and, and, and it's such, it's kind of, it's beautiful. The way Christianity is beautiful failure at its essence maybe people would disagree with me. And so I, I, I used a chapter, an essay of hers that was about why as a Jew trans, um, um, converting to Catholicism, she refused to get baptized because she wanted to be outside with all the other people who were not, who were not, you know, inside the church, even though she was inside. And it was that kind of contradiction of inside and outside that seemed so pathetic. Like, what an amazing way to want to be a Catholic, to be not baptized. And she was the first person I picked. And after that, it would just be, it was kind of like the next thing I wanted to read and think about. I think maybe Andrea Dworkin, to get her to talk about language, not sex, felt interesting because she was talking about how all of it was organized, you know, not not patriarchy in terms of sex, but patriarchy in terms of language. And so it's just it just kind of a, a very, a, very much a, um, a system of, of accrual. You know, the book really just kind of grew. And there were some people that were really supposed to be in there and somehow didn't wind up in there. You know, I have a whole whole well, a slim volume called Too Pathetic that of the, <laughs> of, they know who they are, you know. 
Wait, what is too pathetic? Well, that's, I mean, it's a joke, but I think of that as the sequel. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. I got to get my cat in out of the snow, sorry. Anything else, especially questions that might go to the other authors? Catherine asks, uh, can you tell us about D-O-D-G-E-M-S? Oh, oh, that's 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 the name. Dodgems is the name of a, a poetry magazine that I edited in the late 70s. I guess it was. Yeah, I guess this that was my virgin experience of editing. And it was um, and it was actually it's, I think I probably have one aesthetic and it keeps going because Dodgems was the name of um, bumper cars at Revere Beach that was the amusement park in Boston. And there were just these cars that crashed into each other. And it was my favorite ride when I was a kid. I just loved to get in the car and bombard people. And when I came to the poetry world, I just couldn't make heads or tails of all the different aesthetics, but I was very excited. And so I decided to do a poetry magazine called Dodgems that was just the collision of all these different aesthetics um, in one skinny poetry magazine volume. So, you know, I did only did two issues. Issue three was going to be great, but I chose to go on a trip instead. So a question from Maeve. I love Bluette so much. The sections chosen frame the book differently for me. A collection highlighting sexuality and fucking. How does sex translate to being pathetic or what does that mean to you? <laughs> does, is that a question for Maggie or for me? Uh, well, since Bluettes was mentioned. I think I mean, Maggie. I that's uh, Maggie, yeah. Well, thanks, Maeve. I guess I would just say that, yeah, I noticed that too when um, I looked at the selection that Eileen made. And, I, and what I liked about it is that um, I think, you know, sometimes like even the word fucking or like different things, like they're used in writing like with the kind of bravado, you know? I mean, I was actually thinking it was funny, Sai, at the end of your poem with that, you know, I can't remember what, what it was now, but like, you know, and I fucked him, you know, like, and, and, and it's great and it works, but I think that like that book, Bluettes is really pathetic and is really about being lonely and speaking kind of like into a void and, and kind of about the loneliness of like speaking to only oneself, like with no beloved to address anymore. And so I think Eileen's highlighting of, those sections together really like debravadoizes the the sex and 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 takes the bravado out of even like the you know Germanic sting of the word fucking or something like that. So I like it. So we got a question from Carrie. Since having work selected for this anthology, do you notice an awareness of the pathetic as you write nowadays? Anybody could take that question. <laughs> if they would. <laughs> I don't know what writing is without like, I feel like it starts from a pathetic place. And yeah. What are you doing when you're writing if not investigating your patheticness? And I don't know. Right. And even the condition of the writer, I mean, like at the beginning of the event, I, I mean, I'd love to think about Zooms and we're all in, you know, animal slippers and, and ridiculous outfits that are, you know, unexposed and stuff, but that's the condition of the writer. You're home in these like ridiculous. I often wear a hat. I look really stupid when I write. You know, it's just like I look. I look ways that. But it's just it's the whole kind of you're kind of this char no character character, you know, and and really a clown, I think. 
if, if you're question. anybody, if you're anybody. <laughs> I just want to add that, uh, go back to that first, first question that sort of relates to everything else is that Amy Gogan, who is an artist also is the most hilarious, but most pathetic, deep, one of the most pathetic deep writers. I've never read anything like it. So she's somebody to check out if you can find her stuff. Saying. The the one the one person who died, I mean, I think there might be two, but I think this one person who died between the time of the work being accepted and the book coming out, which is an Argentinian writer, Sergio Chefek. And it's a little um his piece in the book is like an excerpt from I think what is it called? Notes of a pamphlet or something. And it's 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 a fictional it's a fictional writer. And it's about his aesthetic and explaining his very pathetic aesthetic. Um, and it's really, it's really, it's, it's such a satire on being a writer. And it's so beautiful and it's so kind of pathetic and urgent and um, failed and, and glorious. I think at all these things that the person was asking about, those are all there in that piece too. Um, and somebody mentioned Gregory Corsa, which I think is very much up that alley of ludicrous satirical absurdist what do we think are we there is there another question do we all want to laugh and cry huh there are lots of questions eileen in chat yeah why don't you pick a good one do you see one that you want to answer well question for Lori: is your work a true story have you always been into astrology is it pathetic Mm. i have not always been into astrology I used to sneer at it and then I got deeply 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 into it and really started to study it and I'm amazed at how incredibly advanced and and smart it is from back in the day the ancient one um but my work my works are always true stories, but they always start from a little, a little something that happened, and I'll just write a sentence or take a line from my my journal, and then you know I have no. Brian Geisen has this uh, my favorite statement. He says, um, "I'm the artist when I'm open, and when I'm closed, I'm Brian Geisen." Oh wow! And I really. I really live by that because I'll start with something that happened just to get myself going. And then the words and the language, they, I think they're, I absolutely believe they're alive. They're little animals and mm. something that wants to be expressed. You, you play with it. It should be a playful thing despite the self-loathing that's always accompanying it. It, for me, it's a, playful thing that that keeps going so so snippets get in there with that were kind that are similar to things that happen but they take off they have their own life and because the surface other things are happening between like you can tell a story just bling blang bloom here are the facts of the story but i don't i don't think that's necessarily there's so many levels of re, uh, of reality and happening so so what well, it's true but it's not literal how's that mm-hmm. it becomes its own thing 
hopefully. Someone's asking you, Eileen, why did you choose to go the anthology route instead of exploring the theme like on your own? I think I've already been I've already been exploring the theme on my I mean, I certainly belong. I belong in this group. You know what I mean? I think, it, you know, I think I feel like everything that I love in other people's work is something that I, you know, have ingested in my own work or I imitate or I'm excited by. And, you know, so it's like I am already of of this tribe, but I was excited to make kind of a, you know, a big a cabinet of us, you know. Um, and it's just it really I mean, too, it's just like the 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 process kept stretching the definition. I love to talk about, you know, like one person who's in the book is a is a poet friend who's a really great poet. And she was the only person um, I thought nobody's going to get mad at me for not putting them in pathetic literature. But and I don't know if anybody's gotten mad, but there's certainly been people who said, I can't believe you didn't include me. But there was one person who said, you have to include me. She just made me include her, you know, and it was and then she gave me all the wrong poems. I thought, no, these are all wrong. I mean, anybody's that's why I didn't put out a call. I didn't want to know what anybody's idea of what pathetic was. It was much more fun to look for it, you know. And so I, I you know, so I looked through her work and I found a, a poem that was um scientific and it used amoebas i think and then but really there was just a little moment where people at the office were near the xerox machine and there was some awkward moment and somebody twitched and i thought well that's like the minimal i mean the amoebas do something and that's pathetic just the fact that they react and respond but just that twitch seemed pathetic i thought that's what it means you know just being sentient and responding and being alive you know, it's just like the whole register of felt, everything that could be felt, you yeah. know, and then and then I suppose felt when it surprises you, you know, felt in a piece of literature where suddenly, oh, you know, anytime that work has affected you that way, you know, I, I, I didn't know that, you know, they did that or look at look at how they do that. You know, it's I mean, it's the, the musical nature of feeling, I think. Eileen, this is a bit self-serving, but. I'm wondering when you chose the poem that you wanted and rejected the ones that were sent to you by this person, what was it about the f the first set that this person actually, you know, what, what did not feel pathetic about those other ones? Well, I think people have ideas about performing the pathetic and it usually seems like the old fashioned well, well, I say old fashioned, you know, the, the American use of the word pathetic, you know, like that's so pathetic you know kind of a derision it's sort of like there was kind of a self-derision in it i mean there's people who's were like joe brainerd seems he should have I, I thought he's pathetic and then i looked at the work and it's not that he's self-deriding but it's so performing the pathetic that it seemed he already did it you know there was no doing you know and i felt like her selections were like that it's like anybody's idea of pathetic is is kind of like Hey, get this, you know. Yeah, yeah. The surprise was more interesting to the to see what what else the I mean for me what else the word could mean, uh -huh. you know. Yeah, I see. Yes, yeah, something something burst through that that formerly there was no language or space for for but somehow you've created a space for something unrecognizable, and silent and hidden away before and it, and it suddenly just comes out and 
because that's how literature means, I think. I think. Yeah, making that space. You don't know what's going to emerge. It seems dangerous to me, and maybe other people are thinking about this too, but as a poet, when you asked me to submit the poem, I was like, oh, great, yes. And then the title was Pathetic Literature. I was like, oh, goodness. And I think it's because of marginalization. And you talk about this, Eileen, in your introduction, really like supremely. But for me as a disabled person, obviously very openly disabled, I'm like, wait, I'm already classified as pathetic in all these ways. Mm -hmm. What then do I do? How is this reclamation? Or like, what do I do? Like, it's, I don't know, it's really, you know, there's a bit of danger to it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. Absolutely. I love that. I love that about the way it's being, rec you're reclaiming it for us. And I'm in such an incredible company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that it feels like reclamation. Yeah. Well, outsider art, as you were talking about earlier, um, or insider outsider with the person who didn't want to identify as Catholic or something like that. Right, Simone, Simone Bay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like the outsider of an inside. I won't, I won't labor that. Yeah. Well, are we there? I feel, I feel perhaps we've gotten to a an incredible moment. Oh, Fanny, what's that? It's up to you. Really, I, I, I feel that we're there. We do you have a do you have anything you would like to throw out, Fanny? You kind of. Well, I'm thinking about constantly about John Wieners as sort of the apex of pathetic. Yeah, I think you're so, I think you're so right. Yeah, yeah. In the way you talk now about what that means, he, he comes right to mind. Yeah, exactly. And he was there from the beginning. I mean, there was a yeah. class I taught at San Diego. He was in that, yeah, he was absolutely in and partnered, I think, by Judy Gron, the two of them in this particular way. But it was great for me to hear young women now speaking from the heart this way. We didn't do that so much. Um, letting loose in that profound, lonely way. Mm -hmm. I think it's great. And we're also lucid and articulate. Um, it was just great. Yeah, I think I think probably at other times there was a sense you would lose power if you let loose like that. That's right. You know, you wouldn't be a real writer, you know, because because that's what women are supposed to do. You know, they're out there. They're out there letting loose. So why right. would you bring it into the center as a as a as a, a kind of art? Well, the great thing now is Trevor Noah keeps referring to Trump as that bitch. <laughs> and that, that turns everything over. He wow. calls it the bitch today, said this. <laughs> That's amazing. So there we are, oh. how you can turn things around. Uh-huh. And it, yeah, and it keeps turning. Anybody yeah. else? Anybody else have some final? Someone asked, is pathetic an epiphany? I think she, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, except again, but epiphany, haven't we, we've, we've been so over epiphany. Remember it was certain poems. It was like an epiphany. Yeah. So it's just like, yes, but let's not go there. I think because we'll mm -hmm. get locked back into the epiphany. 
I like to call it the theory of total humiliation that allows me to write because you embrace the certainty of humiliation, which never happens mm -hmm. anyway, because it's a risk you take. Right. And, right. and that, that's a gift to other people that offers them the chance to take the, the risk. And then that brings into question who's calling, who's, who's saying what's good and what's bad and what matters and what doesn't and fuck them. Uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. That's how you discover uh, amazing things. I, I don't know. Yes. That's my thing. Could I just say, could I just mention Bernadette? Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because what a great innovator mm -hmm. she was. And I was reminded of her actually in many of your readings of the bold, the bold Bernadette. Right, right. And yeah. I, it's, it's so funny. It's like she hasn't been in this neighborhood for a long time, and she's really here right now. It's so weird. When I walk through the East Village, I feel her presence now. Sure. I know yeah. I've not felt in years, you know. And I think it's just the the loss of her makes her present in this this little this real way. That was. Yeah. I just want to say I'm. I didn't have a chance to know her closely, but she was one of the first poets that came out, Disabled and Beauty is a Verb, the new anthology of disabled poetry in 2010 of her generation. And that was fucking huge because I was like, oh my God, Bernadette's here. Bernadette's in our anthology. And mm -hmm. so I miss her very much. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know if we have time, but Frank, someone wants to ask you a question. What do you think? Do you have time for it, Frank? It depends on how long. Really long. Yeah, what is it? When what it came it? to your second poem, what made you to decide to put it, dialogue within the poem? Technically speaking, it, 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 it's not structured on the page as a poem. It's, uh, but thank you for the question. I mean, it's structured as a vignette. So, um, yeah, I was just trying to get compression uh, with respect to what would happen with a family of dealing with their own issues kind of off center from these burning streets that are happening, you know, like several, about 10 blocks away. And, um, and I think that I was actually given a, a word limit. So I guess I want to say thank you for thinking of thinking of it as a poem, but uh, if you can see it on the page, it's a short piece of prose. It's always interesting when people decide that something is a poem, you know, and and, and even where does that come from? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think because maybe for you, because the first piece you read, which was I have to say, was like a Sagittarian love poem that was so great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you're a Sag also. I am. I am. We have yes, in the yeah. birthday season, and yeah. I'm Megan Camille is also a Sag. Well, well, Sag, you know, are the only people who can tolerate Aries. So, and uh, I'm an Aries. And I'm <laughs> we tolerate you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In relationships, we tolerate them for a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're an Aries, right? You're the ones who get yeah. things I, I, I'm, I'm an Aries. Trouble. 
Are you an yeah. Aries, Frank? I'm an Aries, yeah, definitely. Hi, Hi hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing but trouble. <laughs> How do I say thank you to everyone on the chat? <laughs> thank you, everyone. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, we, we, yeah. I thank everybody so passionately. I love you guys, and this has yeah. been so awesome. And everybody who's been listening and just this is just yeah, like, thank you like, for coming everyone and thank you yeah. for reading every beautiful person on here exactly okay well i guess should we just wave and say yeah. mwah mwah thank you love is all around thanks for yeah. bringing us together eileen and simone i think may have already left frank <laughs> Cyborg, Jillian, and a big shout out to John Mark Bowling at Grove Press for all his good work. And thanks, last but not least, to all of you in the audience. You've been so active in the chat. Yeah. So much love in this room tonight. As always, you complete the circle. I have posted links with which you can get pathetic literature. Um, also, today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation. Uh, keeping me employed and continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. Best for the season. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Love you. Bye, Bye, -bye. Fanny. Bye. Okay, bye everyone. Bye, bye Camille. Bye, bye. Who am I missing? I can't see anybody else. Bye. Bye, Miles. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com/events.